0: It is good to have you here this evening. Uh, I must say that my estimate for who would be here tonight has been exceeded by, by a fair number. Maybe I don't think highly enough of our group or, or what, but I'm glad you're here tonight and if you're online, I appreciate your presence as well. I'm glad to to join. I just noticed that on pictures popped up that it was three years ago today that Pastor Aaron joined us officially as our pastor, our assistant pastor, so it was a good memory to to have that, and we're glad he's been here for three years. We are, this evening, coming back to our series through Revelation, returning to that study, and we're positioned near the end of the tribulation timeline as we've been looking through this book. The the seven years of divine judgment that will be falling on the earth, we're very close to the end at this point. The last time we looked at the book, we went through the the rapid pouring out of the seven bowl judgments. That essentially brings us to the end. The the bowl judgments are the third of the three sets of judgments that make up the, the tribulation period. And all seven seals have been opened at this point. The seventh seal revealed the seven trumpets judgments. Those seven trumpets sounded, and the seventh trumpet contained the seven bowls, and, and now the seven bowls have been poured, bringing us essentially to the end of the seven-year period. We, we know that the tribulation culminates with the return of Christ. So from the flow of time perspective, that is the only thing left in, in the, the period of the tribulation. That's the next event that we can expect as, as the cataclysmic destruction of the seventh bowl poured itself out on the earth the the sixth bowl you may recall prepared the way for the armies of the earth to gather for the final battle which they were going to face off against the returning messiah when when he comes at at harmageddon then then the seventh bowl after that that brings massive destruction such as that which the world has never seen before as the end of the judgment's fall If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 17, look just a few verses earlier at at the end of Revelation 16. Pick up and that seventh bowl as it it pours out on the earth in verse 17 of of chapter 16. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hellstones, about one hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because this plague was extremely severe. That divine announcement there—it is done. It, it reveals that that the final judgment's fallen. Christ now will return for the, the final battle. That battle is in chapter nineteen, though. Before we come to that battle, John once more finds the, the flow of event, events interrupted in, in the vision that he receives, as once again he's given a, a, a bit of interlude to give him some more background information that, that will help him understand this, this last event. In, in verse 19 that we just read, it, it tells us that Babylon the Great was remembered before God. That, that indicates that the heart of the Antichrist kingdom, his capital, it, it receives special judgment from God. Well, chapters 17 and 18 fill us with the details about why Babylon, this, this city, deserves the special judgment. And specifically, what is the judgment that, that comes when God remembers this city? Of course, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This city falls into the terrifying hands of the living God. Chapter 17 and 18, they they function really as a a two-part look at the destruction of Babylon, the the capital of the Antichrist. Tonight, we're only going to look at the first part, chapter 17. Chapter 18, we'll have to wait a couple of weeks since I'm going on vacation, but Lord willing, we'll come back and and, and see that um, in a couple of weeks, what comes in chapter 18. Let's start looking at our chapter this evening, chapter, 19, or chapter 17, rather, and look at the first six verses. In, in the first six verses, John receives the vision of the harlot. The vision of the harlot. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads heads, and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. So here we have one of the angels that had received and and then poured out one of the bold judgments uh, becomes John's guide to, to serve as if John receives the latest vision. As John takes this really kind of short excursion from, from the, the flow of events, he, he sees another aspect of, of history. And this ex- angel will then explain as he's going along what he is seeing so that John, and then really by extension us, so that, that we can understand how these events have contributed to this wrath of God which has just been unleashed in the bowls, you know, specifically that the remembrance of this city. The, the angel specifically tells John that he's going to show John the, the judgment of the harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of for immorality. Well, from a character standpoint, this is the, the first time that we've encountered this character in the book, this harlot. The, the, the word that's you've described this character is the standard word for a female prostitute. Um, the, the adjective great indicates that this is the most significant prostitute. As we go, we'll see that this harlot is actually a metaphor. Uh, much like in chapter 12 when we had the woman that was a metaphor for Israel. Well, this woman is a a metaphor as well. This harlot is a metaphor for spiritual idolatry. God has used the, the metaphor of adultery and, and sexual immorality throughout Scripture to, to refer to spiritual idolatry. Time and again, spiritual idolatry is referred to it as immorality. Partly, it seems, because immorality and idolatry are linked both in image as well as in practice. And, and we find that in the Old Testament. We find that as well in the New Testament. So, taking that image and personifying that idolatry as a harlot, that's very consistent with the biblical imagery that that we're familiar with. That The harlot is further described in verse 1 as sitting on many waters. Well, verse 15, when we get there, it makes it clear that that the many waters is is the world's population. This woman who personifies spiritual idolatry she she personifies that the spiritual impetus that that leads the world all the people of the world to pursue false religion rather than the worship of God that's what we're looking at here this the, the movement of false religion that that drags the population of the world away from God the the Harley is most successful in her efforts furthering false religion she's very successful she she is most successful in that she makes connections with the kings of the earth, as, as well as with the average people dwelling on the earth. It doesn't matter what what social level they're at, she, this woman, this false religion, is able to form a connection with them. She's a harlot because she successfully incites all of them to engage in spiritual immorality with her. In other words, what John is, saying, is seeing here and the angels explain is that all levels of society succumb to religious apostasy that, that's instigated by, by this false religious movement, this harlot. The angel tells John that he will show him this harlot and in verse 3, that's what he does. He takes John out into a wilderness and there John sees this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now the beast is... Quite unusual. It, it, to, we're told the beast is full of blasphemous n- names and has seven heads with ten horns. Um, just Google that sometime and you'll get all kinds of fanciful um, drawings that people have taken to imagine what a, a seven-headed, ten-horned beast might look like. Um, we will get a little more information about this beast in a few minutes, but but for now what we should note is that this woman... This harlot is sitting on the beast. That, that indicates that in some sense she's exercising control and influence over the beast. Much, much like a, a rider does when he sits on a horse and, and, and guides and controls the, the horse. That's what this woman is doing on this beast. If John looks at, at the woman, what he notes immediately is her clothing. She, she's clothed in purple and scarlet. Now now these are two distinct colors, purple and scarlet, but, but they're both very dark in appearance. Uh, I find it interesting that, that these are specifically the, the two colors of the robe that, that Christ was given when he was tortured by the soldiers before his crucifixion. in, in Matthew chapter 27:28, Christ's robe is called scarlet. And in Mark chapter 15, and John 19, it's called purple, to describe it. it.'s this dark color. I find that interesting because we, we need to remember Satan's always the great mimic. There, there's likely an indication here that false religion has tried to imitate Christ in, in the presentation of, of various objects of worship. That The harlot also has all the trappings of, of luxury and royalty. And yet, when John looks carefully and he inspects these trappings, these things that she has, careful inspection shows that at her core it's always total spiritual immorality. False religion can only offer abominations and, and unclean things. It can't offer anything pure. As one commentator expresses it, the, the contents in her cup uh, of her hand, for example, it em- empathize, or epitomizes the, the depths of her degradations. John does not immediately see the true character of the harlot, but... but the mystery of who she is is revealed then in verse 5. His first impression is he sees this this person, this woman sitting on this beast, and she has these great clothes. She looks like royalty. She has these trappings. But when he looks careful, though, there's things that are unclean, full of abominations. And then he's told in verse 5 that this woman is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Those names as names always do in Scripture, reveal completely who she is. She's both the personified source as well as the leader of false religion. She's the impetus behind it, but she's also the one then who who leads. It's been a couple of years, but when we studied the, the first several chapters of Genesis, um, if you remember back, if you were with us when we studied those, we, we saw that false religion began in an organized fashion in Genesis chapter 11. And it began at ancient Babylon. In Genesis 11, we have the, the record there of how the people after the flood of Noah, they refused to scatter and fill the earth. Instead, they, they devised and, and utilized a false religion that was centered around a tower that they were building to, to unify themselves in their disobedience to God. God told them to scatter and worship him. Instead, they, they built this tower that that they were going to center their worship around. And that place was called Babel in Genesis 11 because God confused their speech. He punished them with with various languages so that they could no longer work together and they they could no longer build this tower and and unify their, their false religion. The ultimate fuel for false religion has always been and always will be hatred of true worship. Instead of bowing before the God of the universe and worshiping God, a substitution is created. Throughout the centuries, false religion has been fueled by the blood of the saints and, and the blood of Jesus. The prophets were killed. Christ was killed. Generations of Christian witnesses have been killed. All because they refuse to worship the false substitutes offered by false religion. Ultimately, John sees that is the chief reason here in verse 6 that God gives this indictment against the harlot. The ultimate reason, the chief reason for the punishment is the persecution and the martyrdom of the faithful. So here, having received this quick vision of the harlot, John now hears from the angel. He hears the history of the harlot. Let's examine her history here at beginning in verse 7. And the angel said to me, you can picture in your mind's eye, John still looking at this beast uh, being ridden by this harlot, focusing on the harlot. And the the angel says to me, why do you wonder? Because remember verse 6, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was... And is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was, and is not, and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five has fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. and he goes to destruction. The ten horns, which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom. but they will receive authority as kings when the beast or with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called the chosen, or are the called and chosen and faithful. So John's amazed by by what sees in verse six. So this angel offers him this historical explanation of the mystery of this woman and, and the beast that that's carrying her. the The bulk of the explanation really centers on the beast. It's, it's a little surprising because we expect the, the angel to talk more about the harlot, but really most of what he says deals with the beast that she's riding. The, the beast with the seven heads and the, the ten horns. He, he gives John an explanation in history, starting with the current time frame from the tribulation perspective. A uh, quick explanation in verse 8, it maps the, the beast to, to the career of the Antichrist, jumping into things right at the midpoint of the tribulation. You may remember from our earlier chapters that the antichrist is a parody of Christ. Even the way that he's presented in verse eighteen is a parody of the way Christ is presented in Revelation chapter one, verse eighteen. Christ was presented as the living one, and Christ says, "The living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore." Well, in parody of that, the antichrist was. Remember, he comes on the scene. We we. When we first met him, he comes on the scene, he consolidates his his global rule in the first half of the tribulation. And then he is not. If you remember, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is killed in an uprising at, at the midpoint. And then he is about to come up out of the abyss. Remember, Satan brings him back from the dead so that the Antichrist can claim he is divine. Of course, the angel also adds the final phase to his career and is about to go to destruction. He he is about to go to destruction. He was that first half of the tribulation. He was not at the midpoint. He dies. He's about to come up out of the abyss. He's risen from the dead and to go to destruction. That's the ultimate end of his history. Still, what we see is that the resurrection of the Antichrist is enough to to fool the non-elect of the earth. All those who are not chosen to, to be written in the book of life whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. Those who are not of the elect. All of those are fooled by this Antichrist who rises from the dead. And they follow him in their rebellion against God. So after tying the beast to the Antichrist, making that connection, the angel moves on to, to give a historical aspect of this beast. The, the seven heads represent seven mountains or seven kingdoms. In, in other words, there are seven world empires that, that rise up out of the mass of humanity. We've got this the, the many waters, the mass of humanity. Seven times a mountain rises up out of that, that mass that, that will have worldwide significance. From John's perspective and the angel's talking to him, five already are historical. One is present, and one is yet to come. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of historical knowledge to identify the, the five historical kingdoms as Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Those are your five ancient, massive kingdoms that, that controlled the, the world and, and specifically had great influence on the nation of Israel. Uh, of course, the, the kingdom that was present at John's time was Rome, and that leaves one that's yet to come, the, the one that, that will become associated with the Antichrist in his kingdom here during the tribulation period. John's told in, in verse 10 that the seventh kingdom will remain for only a little while. Yet the end of the seventh kingdom is not the end of the beast himself. As the beast is also an eighth kingdom while also one of the seven, one that goes to destruction. So unraveling what this means requires the, the further explanation of the ten horns from verse 12 because at first it's confusing. How can be one of the seven be one that, that goes to destruction and is, one, is also an eighth? Well, when we add in the ten horns from verse 12, we, we find the Antichrist is the ruler of the seventh kingdom. But as I said, he dies. And then you may recall from when we met him for the first time in chapter 13 that he died actually as an uprising from a, a group that was led by some of the other co-rulers. He, he, he initially rules by leading a group of co-rulers of some sort. Um, that, that we have these and, and some of the other co-rulers in the first half of the tribulation that the Antichrist is, is one among them leading and, and ruling with them through them. Somewhere near the midpoint, there's an uprising against him. And there's a short war, and the Antichrist is killed. Well, then he comes back to life. And when he comes back to life, he's apparently finished with any semblance of cold ruling of any sort. And he morphs this seventh kingdom that he was a leader within, and the leader through these others. He morphs that into a tenth or into an eighth kingdom, where he himself is the undisputed supreme head. And then he divides the world among ten regional kings, all who serve him. This final worldwide kingdom, it will last only for a short time, as indicated in verse 12, by the one hour. A very short time, because the ten regional kings and the Antichrist, they all have one shared purpose. Their only purpose is to wage war against the returning Christ. So we're coming at the battle of Armageddon here from, from different perspectives. We're, we're, we're looking at the political movements that that's resulted in all the armies of the earth gathering together. But, but we still arrive at the same place. The world is ready to, to meet Christ in battle. The Antichrist is leading his ten subjugated kings and they, they commit all of their resources, all of their energy, all of their might to the, this coming battle against Christ because they know he's returning. Of course, the angel includes in, in the little explanation here that, that things will not go very well for the Antichrist and his allies. He, he simply says in verse 14, the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings they have no chance against the Supreme Lord and the Supreme King. No matter how great of an army they amass, Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to bring his saints with him and he will overcome. He will win. In these verses, in in 7 through 14, what we have is, is a real quick recap of world history. But let's not forget that the angel gave this information to explain the history of the harlot. Even though the, the focus is, is not the beast, it's this metaphorical beast that, that represents the secession of global empires that rise out of the mass of humanity from time to time. And when they do, there's always the harlot that's riding on, on these kingdoms. In other words, one of the things that these worldwide empires all have in common is that they are controlled by false religion. False religion has served as a unifying and and a guiding influence on all of these great kingdoms. They they do not exist without false religions. These empires are are consistent one after the other. When you go through them all, they're all consistent in their hatred and rejection of God. They're they're all consistent in, in substituting false worship for true worship. They're, they're consistent in incorporating rampant sexual immorality into their worship. They're, they're consistent in their hatred of the people of God. And they're consistent in their shedding the blood of the saints of God. You can look at all of them. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. They all persecuted the Jews. As soon as Christianity arose out of Judaism, Rome took up the cause and persecuted Christianity. And influencing all of this persecution, giving it a semblance of, of, of acceptability, a veneer of, of rightness, has always been false religion. It's the harlot. So having reviewed the history of the harlot, the angel concludes The stage of this brief interlude here with the destruction of the harlot. The beast, the Antichrist, his armies, they're going to be overcome, but what happens to the harlot? Well, verse 15 through 18 gives us the destruction. And he that would be the angel again said to me, John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The angel shows John here at the end of, that while the Antichrist and his Ten Kings may tolerate the harlot, in other words, they, they may tolerate false religion for, for the purpose of consolidating their power over, over the people, ultimately the Antichrist despises her. The Antichrist despises false religion. The Antichrist does not want to share any power at all, he wants all of it. So he doesn't want to share any power with false religion. I mentioned earlier that that, influences, uh, that he, the false religion influences the rulers of the world and, and the harlot also exerts influence over the peoples of the earth. There, there's this interaction between the peoples and, and the false religion and the leaders. We've observed all of this throughout human history. God made mankind to be a worshiping being. From, from the very moment that Adam and Eve rejected God in, in the Garden of Eden, mankind has always, fought, or always looked for, sought out worship substitutes. So Satan's worked throughout history to, to guide men and women away from God by s- suggesting an endless p- parade of, of substitutes for, for worship. The tribulation will, will begin with the Antichrist and the other co-rulers stoking the, the fires of false religion to influence the, the people of the earth to join in their open rebellion against God. They'll, they'll recognize that false religion can serve their purposes. But that doesn't mean that the Antichrist will appreciate the, the shared position that will be in the hearts of people when they love him and false religion. Again, I, I trust that you remember when after the midpoint, the Antichrist returns from the dead. And when he does, he proclaims himself to be God. He is the one to be worshipped. We also saw in chapter 13 that along with the, the Antichrist, there's a false prophet that comes on the scene there. The, there's that second beast from chapter 13. And that second beast, the false prophet, serves as... His agent to consolidate all the the worship of the world, these other false re- religions that that he's using, consolidates all that into a, a single unified worldwide religion that centers on the Antichrist and Satan. Remember, people have to take the mark of the beast, be able to to do commerce. They have to confess their allegiance through that mark to to worshiping the beast. There will be only one false religion. It will consolidate under him. At that point, he has no use for false religion in general. There's no room in his religious scheme for other false religions. The harlot will not find a place in his kingdom. So all the hatred and disdain that the Antichrist and the ten kings under him have for a shared power will, will flow out in an attack against all aspects of false religion that is not beast worship. In other words, Antichrist worship. He alone is the sole object of worship in the last half of the tribulation. How all this ties in to the explanation the angel is providing in this remembrance of Babylon is made clear by the final verse. Apparently Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist, his capital, also becomes the focal point for the false religious system in the first half of the tribulation. As the various false religions of the world are integrated, I don't want to say consolidated, but they're, they're harmonized, integrated together. Apparently they will set up a headquarter here in Babylon. That's in the first half. And then when the Antichrist puts his throne there, he eliminates that. At the heart of all the false religions that can gel into this worldwide system will be one common thread. That will be a hatred for the truth of Christianity. The, the propaganda against the 144,000 and the two witnesses that were in Jerusalem, that, that will all flow out of Babylon as the center of this hatred. The rhetoric against Christ himself will come from this city. Remember, by the time we got to the, the, the sixth seal, the people knew that these judgments were coming from God. Well, all the rhetoric against Christ will come from this city. The, the movement that results in countless martyrs will drive its power and, and vision from this city of Babylon. That's the first half of tribulation. And we see that that city will be the center of hostility. That will become even more pronounced. Things will be even more hostile, more deadly in, in the second half when, when beast worship is the order of the day. When people are forced to take that mark and, and openly demonstrate their allegiance to the Antichrist as God or, or be hunted as an enemy of the state. More martyrs will gather during those final years in heaven. We've seen that in the previous chapters. And all of that is, is centralized in the capital city here. That's the source of this worldwide influence. Is it any wonder then that, that God will remember this city and bring specific destruction down upon it? When the final bold judgment is poured out, there is special punishment directed against Babylon because it has been the center of hatred for the people of God. Still, I suspect that you may have noticed I skipped over one verse in the quick summary of this last section. Look with me at verse 17. Four, or we could read, instead of four we could read, What the angel is saying, all of these things that I'm talking about will happen because, that's what the forward means, because God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. It is no accident that the people of the earth followed the false religion of the harlot for three and a half years. It is no accident that the Antichrist and the other rulers during those years see how they can utilize the harlot while they also chafe under the influence of the harlot. It's no accident that false religion helps them achieve their goals of ruling the world. Nor is it any accident that after the Antichrist rises from the dead that he finds ten kings who are willing to fully commit themselves to him for their piece of a global pie. It's not an accident that they're even willing to engage their forces under the Antichrist for an all-out battle against the returning Christ. It is no accident because all of this has been God's sovereign purpose from the beginning. God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. God is behind all things. That The strife The unity of the kingdom of the Antichrist, the strife, as well as the unity of this evilest kingdom that that ever comes on this earth, ultimately the the strife and the unity of of the kingdom of of Satan, these are all part of God's sovereign purpose. In in the end, both the harlot and the Antichrist are playing out God's plan. They're they're doing His will. They're, They're bringing things to the conclusion that He has foreordained For his glory. Those most aligned against God are still nonetheless serving God. The angel wants to ensure that John, and and again, by extension, us, all of those who read this letter, the angel wants to ensure that, that we not only understand how all these streams of history lead to the final moments of divine judgment, he also wants to ensure that we understand that all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. These things happen because God puts it in their heart to execute his purposes. And he does that by giving them a common purpose. They're not going against what they want. God gives them their wants. He gives them this desire to to rage war against him because that achieves his goal, his purpose, to bring glory to his name. Of course, the same is true now as well. We, we don't have to wait for the end time to, to know that this truth is in play. Evil itself serves God's purpose. Even evil. God puts ideas into the hearts of, of those who hate him and those ideas will move them to serve his will. Our challenge is to not only recognize this as truth, but, but to hold on to it when we're on the receiving end of, of that hatred. when When we feel the 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 agony that comes from those who hate God venting their hatred upon us. Such opposition should come towards us. It should come because of our stance against abortion. It should come as we stand for the unborn, for example. We should remember that the hatred is not by accident. The opposition is part of God's plan and under his control. God's put that opposition in their heart. The same thing when we're hated for our opposition against general immorality. Again, it should not surprise us. It's part of God's sovereign plan. When we receive opposition for our, our opposition ourselves, when we receive hatred for our opposition against things like race-based idolatries and, and all kinds of other out-of-the-mainstream views that we have because we are Christians, Opposition and hatred only come because God has put it in the hearts of those who hate us to do so. We we may not understand why God does such things, but we can be assured that it is part of his plan, and as part of his plan it will fulfill his good purposes. God's words will be fulfilled. The, The final verses of the chapter here have shown us the destruction of the heartland, how that plays in God's plan it occurs as and when god wills it to occur so we've reviewed the vision of the harlot this this historic false religion that that will finally end up centered in babylon during the the tribulation john's received this vision from one of the angels who poured out the final bowl judgments so that he would better understand why there was this special remembrance of babylon in the the final bowl Again, we need to remember this is showing us things that will come after we are gone. If the Lord tarries a few decades, all of us will have finished our journey under the sun. We will no longer be alive when he returns. If the Lord returns for his church soon, assuming that we have personal faith in him, that we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we will be raptured before any of these tribulation events occur. So in either case, we... Can expect that we'll be gone before these things unfold. That makes it a bit hard to apply this text to us, as we've said throughout our study. Still, I believe there is a general principle that that we can extract this evening that is pertinent to us even now. That principle is: we must be wary of popular religion. We must be wary of popular religion. I, I said what I meant. We must be wary. Of popular religion now I'm not trying to push a conspiracy type theory sometimes those are popular I'm not trying to do that but one thing that we can observe from the history of the harlot is that in every case when there's a dominant world empire false religion was involved there there's an alliance of some sort between false religion and government and ultimately that alliance exists because false religion is accepted by the people in a turn, it ends up strongly influencing the people, if not controlling the people. Well, it, seems that it it seems to reason that the same principle applies in general, that it's not just when you have worldwide empires that false religions on the scene, popular religion is by, by definition popular. That's what it means it's popular. It's popular to the masses, it's acceptable by the masses. and yet. Popular religion will also exert great influence over the masses. It gives a, a worldview that the masses accept and that they follow. So we should be wary of it. Take, for example, what appears to be ascending to the level of the most popular religion of today, wokeness. Now, if you're not familiar with, with wokeness, there, there is no official church of wokery. It, it doesn't exist. But the goal of being woke is invading all aspects of our culture. It's functioning as a religion. The the definition of woke is is simply being alert to injustice and discrimination. If you look at what is woke, it means being alert to injustice and discrimination. Well, that sounds like a good thing, right? As Christians, we stand for justice. We should be opposed to discrimination. The problem is, woke has morphed into a popular religion. And as it's morphed into religion, it's become a false religion because people are worshiping an, idol- an ideology rather than Christ. So we end up with things like Supreme Court nominees that are unable to define what makes a person a man or a woman, all in the name of resisting discrimination against those who reject God's binary categories. We can't define a woman or a man. We're told that children in kindergarten should have the right to decide their gender and that the number of genders is apparently unbounded. It's far more than two. Airline traveling, we're anticipating doing that tomorrow. Well, airline traveling can become increasingly entertaining as you might encounter support peacocks and monkeys and snakes. One person in Australia even attempted board with an emotional support kangaroo But we can't discriminate against any of these things. That's the religion of wokeness. The the reason that wokeness seems to function as as a false religion in our day is that there is clearly an accepted body of so-called truth. Religion always needs a body of of so-called truth. And, And any disagreement with that truth must be met with immediate censor. Well, As people who believe that God has given us absolute truth, no matter how graciously we might try to object to today's wokeness in light of God's truth, we can anticipate being castigated as narrow-minded bigots. We're outside the bounds of popular religion. Really, it should not surprise us that popular religion will head into the land of false religion. God has created three institutions in which we live out our our earthly existence. Three institutions. We have the institution of the home, the institution of the state, and the institution of the church. The, The Bible defines the boundaries and the purposes for each of these three. That means true Christianity is the only place to find God's definitive word on each of these. Christianity alone can tell us the ultimate purpose for the home, the ultimate purpose for the The state and the ultimate purpose for the church. But Satan wants to destroy everything that God has created. That's been his goal all along. So he's going to look for an inroad into each of these three. and slipping in through false religion, since Christianity is the only thing that can define the bounds of these three, a false religion that's accepted is an inroad to distorting all three of the things God has defined for us to live our existence within. And as long as Satan is able to distort religion so that the message that is conveyed is that people ought to be allowed to live their lives as they desire in their sinful hearts to live, it will be popular. That's why I say we must be wary of popular religion. We're not seeking to be oddballs. That's not our goal as Christians. We're not intentionally seeking to be unpopular. But Our chapter this evening should remind us that such as likely, as long as we remain faithful to God, we should expect that the false religion of the world will move against us. Because the harlot is still on the move. The harlot is still generating false religion in our world. We need to be wary of popular religion. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to be discerning, to be wise, to be wary of the false ideas that are pushed around us. All in the name of, of rightness and truth. May we be men and women who can discern when they do not match up to your revealed truth. And may we be men and women who hold to your word alone as the ultimate source of all truth. May we not fear being outcasts. May we Simply be faithful. May we live for our Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen.